Welcome back to Night School 6. We're back with Song of Myself, episode, I think, three on Song of Myself. We are all the way to part eight, and back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, Wes. Hey, I think it's, I think it's your turn to read first this time. Okay, okay, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, this will be one of the as-promised short episodes, and so since there's no crazy feedback going on on my microphone, I'm feeling pretty blessed right now, and here we go. The little one sleeps in its cradle. I lift the gauze and look a long time and silently brush away flies with my hand. The youngster and the red-faced girl turn aside up the bushy hill. I peeringly view them from the top. A suicide sprawls on the bloody floor of the bedroom. I witness the corpse with its dabbled hair. I note where the pistol has fallen. The blab of the pave, tires of carts, slough of boot soles, talk of the promenaders, the heavy omnibus, the driver with the interrogating thumb, the clank of the shod horses on the granite floor. Excuse me, I went a little far there. Uh, the snow sleighs clinking, shouted jokes, pelts of snowballs, the hurrahs for popular favorites, the fury of roused mobs, the flap of the curtained litter, a sick man inside born to the hospital, the meeting of enemies, the sudden oath, the blows and fall, the excited crowd, the policeman with his star quickly working his passage to the center of the crowd, the impassive stones that receive and return so many echoes. What groans of overfed or half-starved who fall sunstruck or in fits? What exclamations of women taken suddenly who hurry home and give birth to babes? What living and buried speech is always vibrating here. What howls restrained by decorum, arrests of criminals, slights, adulterous offers made, acceptances, rejections with convex lips. I mind them or the show of, or resonance of them. I come and I depart. All right. I guess I'll share this. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at it on my screen. It's, it's cool how quickly we move from the uh, kind of ethereal philosophical discussion from last time uh, about death and life and being, and we just kind of plunge into all of these um, everyday sorts of uh, occurrences, right? It's, they're, they're kind of passionate and they're kind of um, dramatic at, in some cases, right? Like the suicide or something like that. But others are just kind of, um, just totally quotidian, right? The the omnibus, the driver, uh, interro the interrogating thumb. I love that. I guess asking, are you are you getting on? Are you getting off? Sort of thing. Um, you have a, a snowball fight. You have, and then as you kind of come to the end of it, it it grows. I guess a little more abstract once again, right? Um, thinking about all of the stories that all of these people would have to tell, and and doing it in terms of the, um, the sounds that they make, groans, exclamations, living and buried speech vibrating and howls restrained by decorum. So it seems like there's a kind of um, ghost almost of all of these stories that, that uh, vibrates in the form of um, these waves of, of sound and silence uh, that permeate this, the actual material of these places, uh, I find that really a little bit spooky. You know, we're still kind of in that ghost uh, death realm, I guess, uh, at, at the end of this part. Right, and it seems to be, this seems to be the same sort of God 
or being character we were talking about from last time that was sort of hovering above. I am not, you know, an earth nor an adjunct of earth uh, from seven mm-hmm. and the, the creature that says undrape. And so here we have sort of a, a hodgepodge of events, experiences, and moments that humans have, like a suicide and a youngster. Again, the grass and the grass, right? Someone just out from the grass and somebody just back into it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we, we have, like you said, these everyday events, like the blab of the pave, tires of carts, like, you know, tires of carts, like hearing somebody's like grocery cart or like a cart in this case, which would be just like a car from the time he was in. It's like, those yeah. are pretty mundane sounds. And yet there, there seems to be a claim here that these mundane sounds are precisely the nature, the world of nature that humans inhabit every day. And thus they are the stuff from which our experience is born. Um, and, and so, you know, I come and I depart. It, it's as if what he is saying here is what we were interpreting last time, that he's sort of like an experience that is eternally in the now, but comes and goes very much quickly and, you know, is gone forever after it's happened, like one's first kiss or seeing a river for the first time or, you know, seeing the Empire State Building for the first time or hidden home run, something like that. Those moments uh, are maintained in memory, but not truly, but not maintained in reality. And so I, I feel like I'm seeing here again, sort of contrast between the ethereal uh, jumping from one thing to another. And eight also seems to be a microcosm of the entire poem in this way, right? That it is spanning the gamut. It's sort of a tour de force of, of things that happen in a Monday and yet also shocking way and so it's it's all of life in a way a lot of mundane stuff and some shocking stuff too and things are well defined here right uh i think eight times nine times in a row uh maybe ten actually uh followed by some what's and so things are very definite and then finished finished with some interrogations but then not all the way then we get that dash at the end the dash makes it way back, its way back in, that connecting force. And so that dash seems to be suggesting something like all of these lines are connected in some vibrating way, like notes in a song or something like that, a song of myself. And so even though the notes themselves look very different, it is the structure of them that gives the form to this. And it's interesting because we don't yet, we have to have sort of faith for that, right? Because we haven't yet observed a structure or, um, or what is it, a Kelson running through this, as he says, the Kielson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I detect also that sort of phenomenological or existential element again, that this is about experiences, not just thoughts, not abstractions, but things that happen and that we see and that we feel, uh, you know, vi- speech and vibration. And it's interesting because you feel a vibration as much as you hear it, uh, right. like an earthquake. Um, and living in buried speech is always vibrating here what howls restrained by decorum and that's interesting too because there's an interplay of culture and nature there right speech restrains in order to empower so that you can be informed and acquire and uh and give or rather uh convey information but you do have to speak within limits which does limit your being to some extent in order to harness it um it's as if and you know a question i was asking you is whether alan ginsburg got his idea for how from this line but um i wonder if he's there also making just a comment on the fact that you do have to restrain your being to some extent to exist within 
human society, which is the place where human nature gets its full manifestation or its fullest, even though it is not ultimately full because you can't be howling everywhere. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of like he can detect that underneath of the, of the everyday, right? This kind of seething energy, which comes out in criminals and in mothers giving birth. And I love the, uh, the crowd with the policeman with his star kind of passing through. I, I feel like that's a kind of interesting counterpoint to what the poet does, which is come and depart. So they're, they're sort of parallel uh, characters in this little brief short story we get. Um, what the policeman does is find the way to the problem, right? And hit it with a club or something. What the poet does is observe and, and hear and detect all of this underlying uh, motive and, and, and energy and then, and then let go, you know, move on to the next thing. Yeah, and in some way they both maintain culture, right? Whereas the one focuses on upholding the rules of culture, one, one is uh, engaged in the act of renewing culture. And um, just one second. All right. Sorry about that, Wes. And we're back. And so should we move on to... Okay, so we were saying something about the, um, how both the, the cop or the, the officer with the shiny badge upholds sort of the face of society or the rules of society or that that which we consciously understand keeps us together, whereas the poet as sort of renewer of society, the Dionysian rather than the Apollinean element, seems to uh, um, uh, manifest the unwritten rules of a society in order to uh, refresh and renew it so that it does not die of over older order, like uh, in a fascist police state. Uh, uh, it's, it's, um, it's almost like a suggestion of Everybody's got their role. Yeah, yeah. And it's important to distinguish where the role is functioning, right? Like it's purposeful mm. and, and living and vibrant and where it, where it becomes, yeah, something that's exceeding its bounds. Um, its balance maybe is a better word for it, so. Right, and oh. we also have that, that interplay, just as we were talking about last time, the, um, the interplay between words with different etymological um, origins, howl, which is very much an old English word, that one syllable, um, uh, sort of ugly sounding and representative in a way of its own, uh, uh, of its own sound. It's sort of like a piece of onomatopoeia. It's close. Mm. And then the word decorum in there, that Latinic word, um, itself a piece of decorum. If your language is so sophisticated that you use Latinisms. Not only does your behavior have decorum, which means an observation of, of known rules um, and being genteel, which is the opposite of howling, like a baby, and is a mark of great sophistication. It's like even the word itself is a mark of great sophistication and appropriate use of it. And so there's sort of a, there's also um, a range of being that I think is being held up in front of our eyes, sort of like the how pure being of a two-year-old, as opposed to the sort of highly sophisticated, genteel society person of like 55, who's like transla translating Thucydides for fun, which would have been an activity that, you know, somebody in uh, antebellum America from the East Coast might have done. I suppose so, yeah. That's a, uh, I've never read Thucydides, but it sounds like 
pretty decorous thing to do. Sure. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get there. Maybe I can get Oscar to do that with me too. That's right. All right, yeah. we might be able to get through this next uh, this next part. Um. <laughs> Nine is short. All right. Nine. The big doors of the country barn stand open and ready. The dried grass of the harvest time loads the slow-drawn wagon. The clear light plays on the brown, gray, and green intertinged. The armfuls are packed to the sagging mow. I am there. I helped. I came stretched atop of the load. I felt its soft jolts. One leg reclined on the other. I jumped from the cross beams and seized the clover and Timothy and roll head over heels and tangle my hair full of wisps. Okay, so we have another, so if you ever have the opportunity to read uh, Carl Jung's five-year seminar on Nietzsche's Zarathustra, that's a real opportunity to take. And I'm not just saying that to you, Wes, I'm saying that to any reader. And that would be something I'd be very interested in talking about at some point. But basically, Jung makes this claim that Zarathustra, which is an odd work of poetry, very different from Nietzsche's other work, makes not logical jumps between chapters, but intuitive jumps, jumps that are non-rational. And so I would, I would make the claim that there's a major jump made between eight and nine that is one of these intuitive jumps. It's maybe non-rational at first, but makes lo a lot of sense creatively or in terms of associating ideas, which is often what we do in our literary amplificatory le lectures, because we go from the city to the country, right? And so that's a sort of non-linear, but, but highly uh, balanced symbolic change, right? Because the, the image of the city evokes the image of the country, the city mouse and the country mouse. And Dickens's comments or book about, uh, you know, a tale of two cities, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, you know the, the contrast between the country and the city um, being one of those major contrasts in way that humans live their lives. And so now we have an expression of the sort of everyday of a farm rather than the city. Instead of wagons or carts going around, we have a slow-drawn wagon. We have the, the country barn uh, and the big doors and sagging mow rather than pavement and gray and green and, and clear light and probably some good smell and air too. And I am there. So we have this, again, this being or God narrator or this the subject that experiences, perhaps. I am there, I help. We have all these pronouns, I, 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 three in this line, very Trinitarian, I, 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 and because there's an identity to them too, right? Came, stretched atop of the load. Uh, I felt it soft jolts, one leg reclined on the other. I jumped from the cross beams and seized the clover and Timothy roll head over heels and tingle my hair full of wisps. So sort of childish, but joyous. and. There's a freedom to this sort of activity, which is in contrast to the idea of harvest time loads and slow drawn wagons. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I see so far there. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big contrast in terms of setting, but also it's a much briefer section, section nine compared to eight, that is. We don't get any direct talk about death or birth, right? It's sort of a but we do have the harvest time and the harvest time is a great image for both those things for the, the purpose that this thing lived and died for which is to um, to go towards uh, some higher higher end right um, it's being gathered it's being taken and uh, conveyed 
and as you say, it's a it's a really playful image that we get. It's it's a, a laborer, you know, this eye. He could be any common laborer, but he's not he's not just that. He's also this um this whimsical uh tumbling through the clover. And uh I love the wisps of it that get in his hair. That's kind of like, you know, his poetic ideas or something, right? That just kind of cling to him as he goes tumbling and reclining on the, on the hay wagon and so forth. And it's interesting because drawing our attention to the harvest time and the biblical metaphors, the idea of the great harvest or revelation, mm. when the elect or the wheat are separated from the chaff, it's interesting because that metaphor seems almost like what happens in a human life. We all, we all plant the seeds of our experience while we grow up, but few happen to actually produce a distillation of that experience in articulate or representative form, right? Like artistic or some incredible performance or some incredible piece of literature or philosophy. And so there does seem to be a suggestion here of the, the idea of production, of being productive, of making something of yourself. And the thing you make of yourself is the thing that can make things. The whole point of the beginning of your life is to acquire enough skill and experience to then produce something greater than you have been provided in your education. And, you know, I, I wonder to what extent that that is the idea of the great harvest, that, you know, many are called, few are chosen, and that everybody gets to experience in life, but who, whosoever distills that experience into articulate form in order to convey that information across time and space to another that's a blessed person and a blessing to others mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know i think it's just like harvesting the food from the ground and then you know selling it to people so they they can eat it's just the abstract sort of host on sunday form of that right well so do you yeah, want to do that oh sorry go on sorry sorry no no i i just agreeing i think it's a cool a really cool uh, leap that he makes there. I'm I'm okay going on into ten. It's pretty long. We can just say a little bit about it maybe and call it yeah. a night. Do you wanna Do you wanna do that one? Uh, because nine was so short. I'm I'm fine reading it. Uh, so, uh, I'd love to. All right. So ten. Alone, far in the wilds and mountains, I hunt, wandering amazed at my own lightness and glee. In the late afternoon, choosing a safe spot to pass the night, kindling a fire and broiling the fresh-killed game, falling asleep on the gathered leaves with my dog and gun by my side. The Yankee clipper is under her sky sails. She cuts the sparkle and scud. My eyes settle the land. I bend at her prow or shout joyously from the deck. The boatmen and clam diggers arose early and stopped for me. I tucked my trouser ends in my boots and went and had a good time. You should have been with us that day round the chowder kettle. I saw the marriage of the trapper in the open air in the far west. The bride was a red girl. Her father and his friend sat near, cross-legged and dumbly smoking. They had moccasins to their feet and large, thick blankets hanging from their shoulders. On a bank lounged the trapper. He was dressed mostly in skins. His luxuriant beard and curls protected his neck. He held his bride by the hand. She had long eyelashes. Her head was bare. Her coarse, straight locks descended upon her voluptuous limbs and reached to her feet. The runaway slave came to my house and stopped outside. I heard his motions crackling the twigs of the woodpile. 
Through the swung half door of the kitchen, I saw him, limpsy and weak. I went where he sat on a log and led him in and assured him and brought water and filled a tub for his sweated body and bruised feet and gave him a room that entered from my own and gave him some coarse, clean clothes and remember perfectly well his revolving eyes and his awkwardness and remember putting plasters on the galls of his neck and ankles. He stayed with me a week before he was recuperated and passed north. I had him sit next to me at table. My firelock leaned in the corner. All right, so uh, I just have a couple things to say. Uh, we have several different stories here. We're in the, the mountains hunting, and then we're on a sort of ship on the East Coast. And mm. then boatmen and clam diggers are meeting me, and each of these are stories, and then a marriage of a trapper to a red-haired girl, and then a runway slave, and we have those series of ands at the beginning of the sentence as well. And so just a couple of things is we have all those stories and they're all, they're all very interesting, practical experiences, experiences like you might share at a bar. And so mm. I see two things there that what this, what this uh, part seems to be modeling is how conversation goes. Again, another stream of consciousness or association of ideas or, or amplification where you go from one story that's completing itself to another story, to another story, to another story, and each is equally a part of being. But also just specifically the very beginning and the very uh, last two stanzas, The Runway Slave and The Marriage of the Trapper and the Red Man, remind me so much of uh, who would come after him, Faulkner, while also the middle talking about sort of New England and uh, boats, of course, reminds me of, of, you know, the author of Moby Dick, Herman Melville. But there's, hmm. there's uh, this first stanza is just so powerful to me. It just, it, it's, it, it sounds like somewhere I would want to be. It draws me in alone far in the wilds and mountains I hunt wandering amazed at my own lightness and glee. Uh, like that language is fun, playful. In the late afternoon, choosing a safe spot to pass the night, kindling a fire and broiling the fresh killed game, falling asleep on gathered leaves with my dog and my gun by my side. There's just such a sense of purpose in place and security and everything going right in mm -hmm. that stanza. Uh, it's just a really great time. And almost like how you would describe something in conversation when you're, when you're distilling the details down to the most important ones. Like when you make an episode of a, a show, right? You don't show everything that all the characters doing or at all the times. You show the meaningful moments. And so this yeah. is distilled down to those. Well, that's about what I have to say. What do you, what do you think? Totally. Yeah. It's, it seems like we're getting a conglomeration of kind of crystallized lives uh, just lined up next to each other. Um, and they're, they're incredibly beautiful. They're, they remind me a little bit of that that room stocked with perfumes back in like section two or three or whatever it was. Right. But they're cause, cause they're, they're so elegantly crafted little right. gems, you know, but they're not, um, they're not delicate in that way. They're, they're rough. You know, they're also, as you say, sort of the, the language of everyday conversation of telling stories of, of uh, passing the time and, and trying to top the previous story, maybe a little element of that too, that kind of Canterbury Tales uh, ad attitude towards um, making a game out of the storytelling, right? Who can, who can tell the best one? Who can tell their story the best? And what makes a good story, right, seems to be connections between people. That's it, anyway what the last two are definitely about. Um, and in any case, even the first one where he's totally alone, it's his telling of the story to you and, and that emotion that it conveys that, that makes it so, uh, so, so fresh and, and living. Right. And, 
and I find it cool that the um, the Americanness of it is is hinted at in various ways, right? You know, the Yankee Clipper. You've got a kind of um, imaginary um, trapper character there, who's kind of an idealization. And I think each of these in, is, in a way, it's it's idealizing a situation, and uh, and yet it's and yet it's concrete. It it rings true. And also showing the true diversity of America and celebrating it, right? Myself yeah. being perhaps the spirit of America or the being of it, because it's the red man, it's the runaway slave, which means black person. There, right. It's the, the sailor from the East, most likely, you know, Caucasian person, and also hunter in the mountains, who knows what sort of person. Um, and so, so many different sorts of people, so many different races, so many different ways of life, so many different terrains in which they live, so many different situations in which they find themselves. And, uh, you know, even the idea of the marriage of the trapper to the red girl, the idea of the institution of marriage, you know, bringing together two peoples yes. to one person or to one people. And so that, that seems to be part of America too, right? And the runaway slave also connotes, you know, a sense of a desire for freedom, because this person takes in the slave that like even that there seems to be a sense of a people coming together that is extremely diverse because of shared values. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, shared humanity, right? It's just what comes down to. Yeah, and a shared desire for freedom because when you think of a boat, you think of freedom out on the sea. When you think of a hunter in the woods, you mm -hmm. think of freedom. When you think of a marriage, you definitely do not think of freedom. But perhaps there is an element of it there. <laughs> but in a runaway slave, somebody pursuing freedom and being helped along the way mm. as well. And, um, you know, and, and well, you know, at least, so I guess if you wanted to find freedom in this marriage of the trapper, it's between, you know, it is a, what is, what is the technical term for, it is miscegenation, right? It is in a lot, in this country, you know, people of different, races can marry and mm -hmm. that's that's okay and it's like you know we were i suppose the idea is we were pretty quick to that idea and we're pretty quick to new ideas as a people um you know yeah, silicon valley's any I, I mean i think you know i think that's probably another element because i think that word was even used as mostly in a negative connotation at, at whitman's time especially and, and so maybe that's another aspect of what was controversial about his poem, though, is that he was openly celebrating these things, which perhaps made a lot of his countrymen uncomfortable at the time. And, and I'm sure that readers now will come across these passages, which are, you know, raw. They, they reopen historical questions, which have never been fully settled, right? So there, there's a lot of of that kind of shaking up of the society that you described as the poet's job here, um, even in celebrating um, this kind of idealized version of it. Right, and I think what he's showing is that what he's supposed to direct our attention toward is the ideal that brings us all together. And that insofar as our actions are not in accord with that ideal, he's going to show them to our face and show us that where we are going wrong. Because he seems to see even clearer than, like, say, we do, that America is about freedom. And the people need to be pursuing that in whatever way they want. And they get to do that in whatever way they want, so long as they're not unlawful. And then the policeman comes. Right. Because 
that's the greatest value of this place. And he seems to, like we've been saying about poets and say the Harry Potter um, podcast, that they seem to see the future to some extent. That uh, like Peterson claims that, that uh, Nietzsche and D Dostoevsky seem to see like 50 years into the future. Um, it's as if uh, what Whitman is helping to do is guide the perceptions of his own people towards what they should become. And, you know, if he's directing people's attention towards, you know, like something that would have been a major issue at that time in interracial marriage, it's like, well, it's not nearly as big an issue nowadays. And it's, mm -hmm. to what extent did he see that as a reality that would come based on our values? And to what extent did he have a hand in helping to produce that? would be a big question that I would have. Um, at, at least the first question. The second question I'd be, you know, not as interested in and it's much harder to answer. Well, it's, I guess, just reading him and, you know, making his poet poem relevant uh, is a big, big step towards making that ideal reality come about more fully. So I'm yeah. going to call it there. I'm going to call it a night. Uh, I appreciate the time as always. Yeah, thank you for the time, uh, Wes, and uh, thanks for helping me get my audio back on. And well, night school, n you know, we got to come up with a name for the night school people, the night of tears or something. That's, I know, terrible, but. Uh, the night scholars. The night course. scholars. Oh, perfect. You've been <laughs> killing it with the names, Wes. Dang. The night <laughs> scholars. Well, well, fellow night scholars, you know, get some rest. You need a good rest to get this education. And hopefully this is useful to some of you. And if it's not useful to you now, I hope it's useful to you in the future. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you, Wes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.